The story of the rise of National Socialism in Germany between the World Wars is an immensely powerful and sobering one. One of the principal themes uh, in this dark chapter in European history, of course, was the increasing persecution of German, Germany's Jewish citizens long before World War II began. Among the Jews attempting to flee Nazi Germany were students at the Großbrasen Agricultural Institute who uh, hoped to secure visas to America. In a bold plan, Richmond department store owner William B. Tallheimer created a safe haven for the students uh, at Großbrasen uh, on a Burkeville farm. Tallheimer's heroic rescue mission and the struggle of the refugees to make a new home in rural America is a remarkable story and one that uh, not many people know about uh, until, that is, today when we have uh, a new book called The Virginia Plan in which Robert Gillette narrates this saga of sacrifice, survival, and hope on two continents. Bob Gillette spent 40 years as a public school educator and he's spoken and consulted nationally on numerous educational topics. He's also directed religious education programs and created curricula in Jewish education. He's an avid canoe and kayak paddler and his first book was entitled Paddling Prince Edward Island. That was published in 2006. And uh, over lunch before uh, the lecture, uh, I was talking with uh, Bob and his wife, Marsha, who's also here, about their forthcoming uh, reunion with Prince Edward Island. They've been there many times, uh, and I'm sure he'll be doing some kayaking then. But today, he's going to be talking about our book, uh, The Virginia Plan, William B. Tallheimer, and a Rescue from Nazi Germany. So please welcome Bob Gillette. Welcome to everybody. Um, I saw a bit on uh, TV just recently that caught my eye. It was a marquee in a theater. And it said, we have air conditioning. It doesn't matter what's playing. <laughs> and now, if some of you came in because we have air conditioning, that's just fine. You are welcome with everyone else. Um, thank you so much for inviting me uh, to uh, uh, to be here today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, the very warm welcome that we receive from everyone here um, at the Historical Society. Um, there are some people here that um, are very meaningful to the book and meaningful to me. Um, I didn't see Richard Hamlin, and I don't know whether Richard is here or not. Oh, there. There is Richard right here. Uh, you're going to hear about the Hamlins uh, as, we, as we move along. Charles uh, Talheimer, who is sitting right down here next to Sybil, uh, was instrumental in, in, in exposing aspects of the, of the family and, and, and along with the uh, uh, research that I was doing. Uh, I saw Inga Horowitz over here that I, I labeled very early on as my spy in Richmond who connected me to all kinds of people. And Diana Gabay recently retired from the uh, Virginia Holocaust Museum. She was a curator. She ran the place uh, and did just about everything, who really uh, opened up a lot of doors to me. Um, people ask, how did you get involved in this story? How did you learn about this story? Um, six degrees of separation uh, in history 
I think is, um, is a sig significant reality. My daughter-in-law, Jody, who lives in Lynchburg, was working up in uh, the Boston area, and a, a co-worker of hers came back from a graduation at Hampton Sydney College. He said, Jody, uh, I want to tell you something. I stayed at a and b called Hyde Farmlands. And breakfast time, I finished my breakfast, and I was sort of wandering in the back and looking out in the windows, and I saw 10 very substantial log buildings on uh, a hilltop. And I asked the young waitress, what are those buildings back there? What is that? And she said, those are the Jew huts. There were these people called Jews who lived here. Well, that's all that she could get from, uh, from that. Uh, Jody, uh, being quite in uh, curious, inquisitive, said, mm-hmm. When they moved down here, he told her that because he knew that uh, she and our son Michael was moving, they were moving down to, uh, to Lynchburg, Virginia. Jody wrote down the name of the uh, person who owned the B&B, Ann Scott, and the telephone number for Hyde Farmlands B&B. She wrote it into her calendar, yearly calendar, and had anticipated calling and to find out a little bit more about what is this all about. Year went on, after year after year, children came along, work, and every year, even though she did not call, she wrote into her calendar the name as if she were going to call. When we moved down to Lynchburg six, seven years ago, Jody took me aside and she said, well, Pop-Pop, now that you've finished this book, I, I, I'm sure that you're going to be looking for another writing pro, uh, project. Let me tell you this story. And she told me this story, and I said, whoa, what is this all about? Jew huts, people called Jews. I mean, this, it, it sounded surreal to me. And that's when I started the uh, research, calling down to Burkeville, Virginia, uh, Virginia uh, area, uh, to uh, the mayor, to the chief of police, to the librarians, asking them, do you have any idea whatsoever about, ever hear of anything about Jews living here or anything? And most of them said, we, have, we don't have a clue. No, we know nothing. One person said, I remember something, but it was almost, almost like he was, he was thinking in the mist of his memory. He didn't, didn't have any information whatsoever. And then I finally came for a visit to the Virginia Holocaust Museum and turned a corner and I saw picture after picture, uh, 10, 12 pictures, uh, of young Jewish immigrants at a, at a farm. And I said, my gosh, there is a story here. I went over to uh, Diana Gabay, her office, and innocently she says to me now, in my question, is there a story here? And she said, here are some of the archives that we have, go to it. And that started roughly four or five years ago. Went through the archives and found that um, there was some information, but not a, a tremendous amount of information. Some newspaper repo uh, reports that later on, uh, by the way, are gonna be proven to be basically incorrect. But slowly I started to gain and gather information to the point finally that there was research that took place at the National Archives, YIVO Institute up in New York, all up and down the East Coast. I was able to identify immigrants and talk to them on the phone. They sent me personal diaries and photo albums. Um, 
ledgers that they had written in German and never translated and never even gave to their own families about their experiences. One woman, uh, Eva, a magnificent woman, you'll meet her uh, in, in just a moment or so in the program, sent me even the, 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 the labels from the seed that she bought right here in Richmond for the farm back in Burkeville. She sent me a, a four-leaf clover that she picked from the field. This is almost 70 years later. Can you imagine? Um, I found 1,700 pages of letters from 1936 to the present of Gross Braziners. Interviews, emails, telephone calls, personal interviews, conversations. By the way, we're using a PowerPoint here, and my wife said the only reason I like it is because it has a laser beam, and I can, and I can sort of play around a little bit with it. Okay, look, what was happening in Germany as a background to, uh, to this uh, program? In Germany in 1930s, as, as, as most of us are, are well aware of, it was a perfect storm, if you will, for a social convulsion. Uh, economic, depression, far beyond what we had in our own country, the rapid change of social mores so that um, a mass of German uh, uh, society was reeling at what was happening in change uh, in values and what have you. Um, they lost a war. They lost worldwide stature. They had, as a nation, a psychological identity crisis. The old Germany seemed to be crumbling, and who could restore it? And of course, we know in 1933, when Hitler took the reins, Rabbi Leo Beck made a statement that, that uh, resounded throughout the world, as it were. And he said, the end of German Judaism has arrived. He spoke that those few words to a gathering of leaders from the Jewish community in Berlin. And then, of course, the Nuremberg Laws came in 1935 in autumn. Basically, two kinds, one dealing with citizenship and the other one dealing with interesting protection of German blood and German honor. The American Jewish Committee here in the United States, in their journal, wrote, if the future of adult Jews in Germany is hopeless, what can we say about the future of Jewish children? And here is one of those Jewish children, Werner Angris, a youth in crisis. One day he was German and very assimilated, very much a part of the youth group uniform that he was wearing, both German and Jew, if you will, because he saw himself as a German Jew. This was the greatest threat, of course, to the National Socialists, to the Nazis. We're going to see Werner Angris a little bit later. One of the um, immigrants that who's going to come later on, her name is Eva, Eva Jacobs, and this was sent to me by her. This uh, passport is emblematic of the progression 
of persecution and discrimination and strangling of the German Jewish community in the 1930s. If you look over here, you're going to see that there is a date, 1935. That's when this passport was used first for Eva to go to England to study English at a boarding school. But then if you look over here to the left, you'll see on the same passport papers, 1939, and there is a J. So from 1935 until 1939, you can see how the, the, the legislation of the Nazi government impinged upon the rights of Jews. And above, Eva's name is Sarah. As all Jews, of course, took on the word or the name Sarah, as their male counterparts took on the name of Israel. They were separated and they were identified. Because the Jewish students had no future in Germany, and because they were no longer welcomed in school, because they had no future in university, what were they going to do? The German Jewish community, and of course we must remember that this was extraordinarily divisive for many, many years, with all kinds of factions, finally came together. They came together because they were committed to the future of youth, and so they decided to develop agricultural training institutes for the reason that perhaps, perhaps, with agricultural skills and training and certification in that field, other countries might be very willing to accept them as immigrants because the leaders in Germany thought well, every nation needs agriculturalists, and therefore this would give our kids a chance to get out of Germany. The name of the institute, which was the only non-Zionist institute for the development of agricultural skills, was Grossbrasen. Not far from Breslau, which was on the eastern border, very near Poland. Dr. Kurt Bondi was selected as the person who was going to develop this agricultural institute. Kurt Bondi had a, an incredibly interesting professional background. He was a social psychologist, cutting edge in many ways, and he was, of course, thrown out of his professorship when, uh, when all Jewish professors could no longer teach. His goal, his goal, was to fortify young German Jewish students, fortify them with several kinds of skills. One was, of course, agricultural skills, technical skills, and that would be done through classes and through experiential learning out in the field. But he also was concerned about personal values. How could he fortify them with the kind of character strength that would be able to allow them to undergo the kind of Strom und Drang, the kind of change that was going to be in the cards for them presently and into the future. In a way, he was so far ahead of his time. His background was in treating of adolescents who had a often delinquent kind of behavior and thrown into penal institutions. 
As you can well imagine, the German tradition of treating people in penal institutions was harsh and had anything to do, had nothing to do with rehabilitation. And that's where Kurt Bondi fought with authorities to change the idea of young people who could be nurtured and rehabilitated and then return to society as citizens. Kurt Bondi was a rationalist, a humanist, relied on reason. And what he taught to those students was to become personally aware of one's self. In a sense, he was teaching them a cognitive technology way ahead of its time, a sense of mindfulness of who you are, where you are, where are you going, what's going on around you, and ultimately, ultimately, to look at yourself with courage and honesty so you understand your own motivations. Bondi was a hard driver. He expected a, a great deal. But also remember that the life at Grossbrasen, which was a beautiful, huge farming estate given to uh, the school by Jews, at this location, at this location, there was the opportunity for experiential learning. It was, if you will, separated by an invisible glass boundary from the hostilities and the anger and the prejudice and the discrimination that was raging outside. Here you had about 100 students, highly selective. These were the eclectic few for each open position in the school, and, and Kurt Bondi interviewed every single one of them, for each one there would have been probably 250 to 500 applicants. You can imagine that parents were so desperate, they wanted to get their kids into a, a situation that could in some way promise them getting out of Germany. 100 kids, Adolescents, many of them known each other uh, from youth group days, away from parents. This was in many ways like a summer camp. This was great. And even though it was hard, it was terrific. Kurt Bondi recognized that he had those kids in teachable moments. Think about it. 15, 16, seven year, 17 years old when your values are being forged. He had them in teachable moments. And as you will see, those moments were used wisely. That's what was going on in Germany. Let's come over here to the United States, to Richmond, Virginia. Now, I understand many, and everywhere we go, whether it's Burkeville or Farmville or what have you, they speak so highly of coming here to Richmond to Talheimer's, it was an event to go shopping and perhaps having lunch at Talheimer's. But upstairs in an office was a man named William B. Talheimer. This became the command center, if you will, for refugee resettlement for the entire country. Now, how did William B. Talheimer get involved? Back in 1930, William, along with his two sons, 
took an extended buying trip to Europe. He took the kids out of school. They, had, they transported the car over to Europe, and they traveled Europe looking at resources uh, for uh, buying for, the, for, the, uh, for the, uh, the store, trying to understand how products were made and so forth. But they really focused a large part in Germany. It was in Germany that uh, William Talheimer experienced the, the, the brown shirts. They were staying as guests of uh, a family that they had met uh, in a Scandinavian country. And one evening, because the windows were wide open, there was no air conditioning at that time, all of a sudden they heard the clamor, the beating of drums, the screaming. And you can imagine off of the cobblestone road against the stone buildings that this was a cacophony of of convulsive madness, screaming anti-Semitic slogans. And Talheimer heard this, and he was scared to his core. I do believe that this seared his soul for the rest of his life. And it was very soon after that that he turned to his family, to Annette and to Charles and Williams, and said, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. This would carry him through refugee resettlement activities. Um, by luck, by luck, Talheimer had an idea that was made real. His idea was, and he sent a letter to the Joint Distribution Committee. And by the way, he rose from committee membership to be the chairperson the national chairperson of all refugee resettlement in the United States. And he was doing this as a volunteer while running a department store in the Depression, trying to keep the lid on things, trying to keep his employees employed. And he was also a father. He was also a member of the Richmond Jewish community in the Federation and all that was going on here. He sent a letter to the Joint Distribution Committee, and, and in that letter, he made a recommendation that could we buy a farm and resettle refugees on the farm, teach them skills, and then send them on their way? And could that farm become now, the, in a sense, the paradigm for refugee resettlement and have it replicated all over the United States? He sent that letter to the Joint Distribution Committee. It was received. It was acknowledged. And nothing happened. One day, Frederick Borchardt, who was working for the uh, Joint Distribution Committee, Frederick Borchardt's job, he was a German, he was also a trustee of Gross Brazen Institute. His job was to try to find possible visa immigration openings in Central and South America. He would go through his files all the time. And one day he was going through his file and he saw a letter, and the top of the letter said, Talheimer Brothers Department Store, and he said, I think I know what Talheimer's. He read the letter and words jumped off the page. Virginia, farm, refugees. And so he called William B. Talheimer to make sure that he was authentically involved in the desire to develop along these lines. 
he was satisfied, and he got Kurt Bondi to come over here to the United States. The two men met, and they clicked in New York City. Personalities were the same, hard driving, no nonsense, practical, but also very articulate and amiable when they needed to be. And so he set out the, uh, to purchase a farm. And the person who he relied on most was Morton Talheimer, his cousin, who was in the real estate business, along with other ventures. He knew real estate very well. He knew location, location, location. He had uh, members of the real estate community all over the state, people that he could, he could call upon for leads into farms. And finally, they found Hyde Farmlands in Burkeville. They went ahead and bought this farm, he did, rather, William B. Talheimer, for $25,000 mortgage, $15,000 for the farm, $10,000 for equipment and miscellaneous, if you will. Central National Bank of Richmond, a fellow named William H. Schwarzschild. Let me tell you, we, we talk about the, uh, networking. <laughs> well, Talheimer knew how to network, but if it weren't for people pulling together, uh, Schwarzschild came up with a mortgage arrangement that people would die for. The first, this was in 1938 April. The first payment on an interest, not even principal, was 1944. <laughs> Can you imagine? He wanted them to make sure that they could get their feet on the ground and get going. I mean, th this was unimaginable. Unimaginable. Um, R.J. Barron was a farm manager at Hyde Farmlands at the time. Just last week in Burkeville, where, where we were um, uh, making this presentation, a woman who was there in her 90s named Mary Pig, who lived on the farm, uh, came up to us and talked about the names and the people she remembered and how the young women of the farm lived in her house for a while. Talheimer had a farm, and it had very long pedigree. It was a gift, not a, well, it was a gift. It was a gift from the King of England as a land grant in 1740s, and in the 1750s, a family named Falks, and I still don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I've been corrected several times by, by people in, in, uh, in the audience at, at various locations. Falk's family had this. It became a huge plantation, 60 slaves in the 1860 uh, census, uh, and here, welcoming, if you will, people seeking freedom. William Talheimer knew people. He could size up people very quickly, and he knew that the person, the lead le legal representation to the State Department had to be somebody who was really bright, really sharp, and he chose Leroy Cohen. Leroy Cohen, of course, was from Richmond and stayed here for a long time. 
Leroy Cohen was sharper than a tack. He had a mind like a trap, people have told me. He could be extraordinarily articulate, but not verbose. He could say what needed to be said in a few words, hit the target right on, and move on. And he was not too Jewish. Interesting. Talheimer knew that he was going to be working with people in the State Department, and therefore an American lawyer, bright and intelligent, is the person that he needed. Let's look at um, a little bit of background here. What was Leroy Cohen and William B. Talheimer facing at the time? 26,000 visas could be awarded to German immigrants per year. From 1930 on, from 1930 on till around 1930, late 36, 37, 4,000 visas were awarded per year. Out of 26,000, 4,000 were awarded. Why is that? There was a definite anti-immigrant feeling in this country. It makes our anti-immigrant problem look like child's play. There was huge, huge anti-Semitism in the 30s and of going into the late 30s in particular, into the early 40s, anti-Semitism in the United States had reached a peak never before experienced, as seen through polls and authenticated. The word was out that there was a gentleman's agreement among State Department people, and remember that it was the consuls the consuls who were the ones who said yes or no to a visa application. The word got out that, and not very often, though sometimes in written form, but usually not in oral form, do not allow immigrants into this country and especially do not allow Jews because they are not worthy of becoming <coughs> citizens. There were two basic ways in which they prevented Jews from coming in, and other immigrants as well. One was called LPC, likely to become a public charge. And so if you applied for a, a, a visa, and if you were not a very wealthy person who could take the money with you, you could be charged with LPC, likely to become a public charge. You cannot come to the United States, because how are you going to support yourself, and then, if, then you're going to be a drag on America, LPC. The other was contract labor laws. If you had a contract, if you had a letter of intent of employment from someone in the United States which would satisfy LPC, you couldn't come to the United States. If you had a contract for labor, you could not come to the United States. This was catch-22 if we've ever seen it. Convoluted. LPC, who's going to support you? You can support yourself, 
You got a contract, you can't come. So the chances of getting people into this country were very, very slim. And I must say that the book, in a way, becomes a case study of American immigration policy in the late 1930s. Talheimer and Leroy Cohen fought the State Department and the Labor Department. And negotiations that took place over 15 months. It started in April 1938 and did not end until June 1939. 15 months of haggling back and forth and back and forth. Most of the negotiations and deliberations centered around defining the immigrants' status as contract laborers. How do they fit in here, number one? Number two, there had never been a consideration of a group for immigration. Each immigrant visa was an individual matter, not a group matter. And here the gross brazen students were applying as a group to come over here. So they had so many aspects against them. We're not quite sure how, and, and you're going to have to wade through this in, in, the, in the book itself, but there is a whole shares uh, consideration to try to convince the State Department that the students would not be LPC, and on the other hand, they were not contract laborers going to a farm. It's not quite sure where this idea came from. It may have come from Leroy Cohen, it may have come from Talheimer, but it may, and I think it did, came from a member of the State Department who offered it up, who had to be sympathetic. I'm sorry, not the State Department, the Labor Department. What happened was that in that 15-month period, you had two leviathons, two departments, warring against each other. You had the State Department and you had the Labor Department. And each one was vying for territorial place. Who is going to be in charge here? Who is going to make the decisions? And so in the research, I found that letters and negotiations go right up, up, up the scale from very low assistants, deputies, and what have you. And before we know it, there is, there is conversation between the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Labor. Secretary of State and the State Department, mostly Hoover handovers, or holdovers rather. Labor Department, much more New Deal Roosevelt. You can imagine the clashes that are going on between those two. Like dragons, fire-emitting dragons. Raymond Geist was the Consul General in Germany. He had the final say, yes or no. Raymond Geist is my hero. Raymond Geist in the consulate was able to get people out of concentration camp. He infiltrated the Nazi hierarchy. He piled around with Goring. He hated the Nazi regime. And he saw it right from the very beginning when he was the assistant to George Messersmith, who was the consul general in Germany in 1933-34. The two men worked together seamlessly. While Leroy Cohen and Talheimer were fighting with the, and when I say word fighting, 
they never fought. They're too smart for this. Um, Representative Satterfield from Richmond told Talheimer, you have to go gently. You have to speak gentlemanly because thin skins are pricked very easily in the State Department and there could be a pushback. While they were negotiating, there were seven people who came here to, uh, or rather came to Hyde Farmlands. These are gross brazen students who um, had immigrated to the United States other than through immigration of a group of the 25 that was finally designated. They prepared the farm for the other immigrants that were going to be coming. And by the way, Talheimer bought this farm before he had any insurance that these immigrations would take place. He committed himself without security. On this farm, there were several young women. And in their journals, it is so exciting to see that as they write about their experiences at Hyde Farmlands here, they are absolutely exhilarated by the new freedom that they're feeling. And what do they mean by new freedom? They now were taking on responsibilities in the farm that were only given to boys and men in Germany. All of a sudden, they, Eva, for an example, was ahead of the, the dairy. That never would have happened in Germany. They loved this new sense of independence and meaningfulness being able to contribute. And therefore, when there were meetings, everyone contributed their ideas equally. While Talheimer and Leroy Cohen are negotiating with the State Department, the Labor Department is going back and forth to Germany and back and forth. And by the way, all the records in Germany were destroyed. So all the records are, are found here in the United States at the State Department National Archives in Maryland only through the back door so that when a letter was sent here, it had to be responded to. But one thing that the State Department do, did and still does is that when there is a communique, very often in the very beginning of it, at the top of the communique, there is a review of where this has been before. So you have a spiraling narration, if you will, of, of the events that are taking place in this negotiation. It's very helpful for a researcher. And the, and the way we found this is a story in itself, and, and, and I know that I have to move along, so I can't tell it to you right now. Kristallnacht. While they're negotiating, all of a sudden Kristallnacht, of course, happened in November 1938. The Nazis raided Grossbrasen. They took all the 18-year-olds and above and placed them in Buchenwald concentration camp. All the other ones, the women, the girls, and younger than 18, were placed in this barn, uh, which became a prison overnight. There was a list of 25 students to be, who, that were designated to come to the United States, 25. The students of Grossbrasen were incarcerated, along with Kurt Bondi, in Buchenwald for six weeks. Brutal. And it was Kurt Bondi, trained as he was, 
observed the behavior of what was going on in the concentration camp to, uh, in regard to the perpetrators, what was going on in their minds, what was happening in terms of the prisoners themselves. And he noticed that his own gross brazen young people, young men, got through that experience in a much different way than anyone else. They did not crack. They formed a bond that got them through with courage and hope. Later on, Kurt Bondi wrote in the early 1940s with Bruno Bettelheim, the very first scientific paper, psychological paper, dealing with the psychological implications of the concentration camp experience. The students finally got their visas. And between 1939 and 1940, Hyde Farmland develops as a farm. They had a red farm truck. And by the way, just recently in Burkeville, Marsha and I met people who remembered the red farm truck that used to drive from Hyde Farmlands to Burkeville to the bus station. Students would come to New York, bus down to Richmond. Bus would arrive in Richmond very early in the morning. They sort of hung out until time Talheimer's opened went upstairs, met with William B. Talheimer, got on the bus, and went down to Burkeville. You can imagine the hugs and the screams and the laughter as these people were reunited once again. The heat of Virginia. <laughs> can you imagine coming from the temperate clime of Germany and being expected and actually being out in the fields during the summer of this heat. They grew tobacco as part of their, uh, their, their farming, and um, I never realized how horrible tobacco farming is. It starts early in the year, and it never ends, and it is the stickiest and the crummiest and the hardest job. Some of the students said they could not tell the difference between the sweat that was pouring off and the humidity in the air. It was absolutely dreadful. Many of the students who were doing this said they would never smoke again. While they were there in the late 1939, electricity came to uh, Nottoway County. Uh, as you can see here, Southside Electric Co-op came in, and they were able to have a water tower. Up to that point, there was no, no uh, modern facilities whatsoever inside the, uh, the farmhouse. They made their own cinder blocks for the brooder house because poultry and poultry raising was going to become the key economic driver of the farm to sustain it. They made their own individual cinder blocks with this thing called the wizard. It's a cinder block maker. It is manual, and I want one. <laughs> if any of you know, if you have a lead, I, uh, why? I don't know. It seems to be the most incredible machine, and Marcia said that I can even use it as a planter somewhere <laughs> in the house. But if you have one, please see me after. I really, really want one. They went ahead, and of course, they were well-trained in gross bracing, but on the other hand, they were learning an awful lot on the uh, premises. They had 
a great deal of wood, wooded area, softwood, pine, and also hardwood. Follow on the right is, his name is George Landecker. And George, uh, some people who are in the audience today know George Landecker. Marsh and I visit him uh, fairly regularly. They live up in Utica in his 90s. And they would haul this wood um, to location to the Oliver Tractor, uh, where there would be uh, attached a, a bandsaw, or rather a, a belt, to the buzzsaw. And, and uh, all during this four or five years of research, Marsha always would say to me, do you really need that detail? Do you, do you really have to know? And I said, yeah. I said, for an example, I needed to know whether the Oliver Tractor had metal wheels or rubber wheels. Well, when I got this photograph, of course, it was rubber wheels. And just recently, I was on the uh, property along with Monty Stokes, who is the caretaker now, and we went into a barn, deserted barn, and we discovered the buzzsaw that was in the previous picture. The buzzsaw that they use, and I authenticated this, and I sent this, paper, this picture to various uh, members who of, the, of the Hyde Farmland community who are still living, and they said, that's it. That's it for sure. So, I mean, I think that's very exciting. <laughs> Chicken houses were constructed. Uh, the uh, Virginia Tech uh, agricultural agents were crucial in giving a lot of advice to these young people. They were so impressed by their spirit. And you can imagine agents who saw um, the opportunity to teach from scratch. And so they gave them uh, plans, and those plans developed into chicken houses, 10 chicken houses, so well built that they would last a lifetime, said the pamphlet that I was able to uh, get that the agents gave to the Gross Braziners to examine. Ernst Kramer was the manager of the uh, eventual manager of Hyde, uh, Hyde Farmlands from Germany. He loved his chickens. Poultry was going to be the success of this farm. In fact, the extension agent said that Hyde Farmlands was the first modern poultry farm in Virginia, that it was the beginning of Purdue. It was the beginning of what we know as modern poultry. And in 1940, you had the huge snowstorm of the century. Um, people still talk about this as being the century snowstorm that closed down this state for almost two weeks. And the people at Hyde Farmlands, of course, were totally snowbound because of the high winds. 10, 12, 15-foot drifts covered the barns and the entrances and the doorways, and they had to tunnel through. But on the other hand, they were able to play in the snow. And as little children, they would come in from playing in the snow into Hyde Farmland's mansion, if you will, the, the main house. They would feel the heat of the day, nostalgic as it is, as little kids who come in from outside and sort of get that lazy, dozy kind of feeling. And I wonder what they must have thought as they experienced the, the, the wonderful feeling of where they were, but also retrospecting from where they were and their youth and what was happening. 
in Germany. In May 1940, Holland was attacked. Um, remember that uh, Talheimer was very, very uh, concerned that the students learn English as quickly as they could. He had the um, Richmond Times Dispatch delivered to the, to, uh, to the farm every day. What was so wonderful for a researcher is that I could read what Talheimer was reading in his, at his breakfast table and know that the kids were reading the exact same thing on the exact same day in Burkeville. I could somehow understand the fear and the concern and the anxiety that Talheimer must have had in worrying about his kids, and he called them his kids, his children, uh, in, uh, in Burkeville. This is a uh, cartoon. It is uh, developed by a fellow named Fred Zeibel. And as I went through all the, ma the, uh, the newspapers, the Times Dispatch newspapers, cartoon after cartoon, were, they were magnificent political cartoons. Um, the students would read the newspapers with dictionaries very often. But the cartoons would say it all. John Stuart Bryan was at this time president of William and Mary College. He was also the owner of the Times-Dispatch Media. John, uh, John Stuart Bryan was instrumental, instrumental in getting Kurt Bondi to this country through the State Department out of quota. And there are letters from the State Department to John Stuart Bryan. You see, Talheimer had connections, but he used them in a way that was wholesome and for a extraordinarily valid reason. 1941, early, the farm closed. William B. Talheimer was extraordinarily sick. He had suffered a heart attack before he even went to Europe in 1930, but he went anyhow. Uh, 1941, he was stricken again, a very weak heart. Uh, the farm could not uh, sustain itself economically. There were 30 people living on the farm at that time. And even though the poultry business was taking off, it just couldn't sustain itself. Um, also, no more immigrants were coming to this country. The doors were closed here, to some extent, with a tremendous fifth column scare in this country. And of course, the doors were closed in Europe as well. The decision to close the farm fell on Morton Talheimer, who stepped in for William, who used to visit the farm quite often. Morton then became the messenger of bad news. He was the manager of a closing. It's like someone who is firing somebody who's been in your employ. It has to be the hardest thing in the world to do. And he became, in a, in a sense, the bad guy. But it was very interesting that the response of the Grossbrasen, Hyde Farmland students who were there, some of whom were there from 1938 through 1941, there wasn't a convulsion. There wasn't a reaction. There wasn't anger. It was as if, okay, we go on from here. What's the next step? And Morton made sure that every single person on the farm had viable employment as they left the farm. 
What did Bondi do on the very day that Morton came to the farm to tell them that the farm was closing and that many of the students would be dispersed all over the United States? What did Bondi do? He had a meeting and he had a discussion of Freudian concepts that deal with getting to know yourself and your motivations. You see, he never gave up. He was there to, to bring them along through their experiences and to help them make sense out of them rather than the experiences controlling, they could control it. 1941 into 1942, everyone in uh, the Hyde farmlands, the males who could, volunteered for the army. At first, they had a lot of difficulty getting in because they were German. And then all of a sudden, the US Army realized, oh, they speak German. <laughs> How good. And some of them became the Ritchie boys of Maryland, highly trained interrogators, interpreters, field uh, members of the, uh, of the Army who negotiate with surrendering. Um, one Gross Brason fellow who did not come to Hyde Farmlands, the only one who was killed in the war of all the Gross Brason soldiers from the United States, was given credit for his negotiation for 1,500 German soldiers to surrender. Why? Because he had the facility and also the brains to be able to talk. This soldier is Tom Angris, Werner Angris, the same young fellow that you saw at the beginning of the program. He took on the word or the name Tom when he got his driver's license here in Virginia because he loved Tom Sawyer. <laughs> and he was a Tom Sawyer. Ernst Kramer, the fellow who was holding those, those chickens and was the manager of the farm, was there to liberate Buchenwald. Can you imagine? And his writing is clearly stated here. Can you imagine what it must have felt like for him to approach Buchenwald? To see what was going on, not only to be horrified by what he saw, but to be horrified by his own memory of where he was in Buchenwald X number of years earlier, a full circle from imprisonment to freeing. Ernst Kramer at that very moment made a decision. He will not return to the United States. He will stay in Germany to help Germany become, again, a democratic nation. He rose up the ranks to become the CEO and the president of Axel Springer Publications, one of the largest publication uh, corporations in Germany, and received from the German government awards and citations for his work in bringing Germany back into the democracy that it became. Today is a beautiful day at Hyde Farmlands. The manor house sits it is contained, it is secured from the, the weather. In the back are those Jew huts, pretty substantial, still standing, 
And Marcia and I love to explore the area. But one day I was there and it was very hot and I took my shoes and socks off and I went to a little creek. The little creek that is mentioned in some of the letters of the Hyde Farmlanders and cooled my ankles. And as I was sitting there, there were voices. There are whispers at Hyde Farmlands. And it's under these kinds of conditions that I ask myself, and recently when I read the book, I read the book as if I didn't write it. I read the book as if being detached. And I asked myself the question, what does it mean? Um, in Jewish intellectual parlance, if you will, there's a saying that the Torah was written, the first five books of Moses, were written with white fire and with black fire. Black fire are the words that you see, the inked words, but white fire is found in between the lines. And it is always where you find the meaning. So, what does it mean? In between the lines. What made William Talheimer tick? I ask myself. And I am continually awed by the kind of courage and patience and persistence. What was the mindset of people of that age who silently did what they knew they had to do and didn't blow their own horns, and they acted. What messages are conveyed, perhaps, that are relevant to our own times from the story of Hyde Farmlands? I think that the people of Germany telling us, or, t or continue to tell us, think in terms of the future of the kids. It's all about the future of the children. Know that every individual is precious. Know that one individual can make a difference, a real difference. George Landacker, whom we saw just recently, even to this day, 70 plus years later, says to us, I don't understand how lucky I was to escape Holland before the Germans invaded. And he almost quivers with this knowledge. And he also said, if it weren't for the Talheimers, I'd be dead. Courage, patience, hope. These are the elements of the spiritual if you will, DNA, the blood that sustains life. Talheimer was not religious in the temple-going sense. In fact, he had many arguments with Rabbi Ed Kalish. They didn't see, on too many, uh, see eye to eye on too many affairs. But in my mind, he was extraordinarily religious in the highest sense. 
there is a saying from the Shulchan Aruch, which is a collection of ethical sayings. Quote, every moment one delays his efforts to redeem captives when he could have helped them is considered as if he had shed blood himself. I don't know whether Talheimer knew this. I rather think he never heard of the Shulchan Aruch. But he certainly knew the meaning of that statement. And one of my favorite Jewish thinkers of the past, Hillel, and I think this was whispered to me in my crib by my father from the very beginning. Hillel said, in a place where there are no men, strive to be a man. Strive to be a mensch. When action is needed, Hillel said, quote, if not now, when? Now you hear this a lot from politicians these days. They don't even know where it came from. <laughs> and I also don't think that most of them really, really believe it. If not now, when? Act. Be courageous. Be persistent. I want to thank you all for, for coming today. It is, it is my hope that the story of Hyde Farmlands, and it's an incredible story, will inspire courage and hope, which we desperately need today. Thanks very much. I'm sorry, I went over a little bit. Uh, some of you I know have to get back to work and what have you, but for those who don't have to leave, I think we can have some time for some questions. Is High Farmland open to visitors? Is Hard Farmland open to visitors? It is not open to visitors at this point. It's private property. However, we just got a call just the day, other day that a Virginia historic sign is being erected uh, in front of the, the property with the permission of, uh, to be granted by the owners. It is also now undergoing the application for registry for national and state registry, historic uh, preservation. Um, the house is in very good shape. Uh, right now, it's in very good condition, about uh, almost a 1,000 acres still there. Uh, my hope is that this, this place has to be saved because, uh, because of the story that uh, takes place there. Yeah. Who owns it now? Uh, it's still owned by Ann Scott, and she is in, in, a, in a, uh, a home up in uh, Boston area, and i um, not doing too well, her daughter, really is the one who, who manages from a distance. Um, I assume that un until Anne dies, that it's just gonna sort of stay in, a, in, in this s static state. I was wondering if you could tell us what happened to the other 75 students uh -huh. who didn't get selected. Okay, wonderful question. Uh, 
there were two generations at Gross Brazen. From 1936 to 1938, in a sense, became a, that was one grouping. And then from 38 on, another grouping came. Out of those 100, um, all of them were saved. The 75 were dispersed all over the world. Australia took a, a contingent, Kenya, um, South Africa, uh, Argentina, Brazil. I mean, they, they were spread out, but nowhere was there a, um, a group like, like there was here in, uh, in Virginia. 25, 25 were on the list to receive visas from this country through the State Department. 21 made it. The other four were, were um, in Holland when, when Germany invaded and they lost their lives eventually in concentration camp. From 1938 on, the second generation, as they say, um, all but one died. Gross Brazen became a labor camp. And um, after Buchenwald, Kurt Bondi was not allowed, of course, to stay. He decided on his own that he was not going to come to the United States, that he was going to work in Europe uh, in resettlement in immigration matters. Uh, he was in Holland when the Nazis, well, when the German army invaded Holland. He was in Brussels on that very day that the bombs started to fall, and he was trapped. He went south and incarcerated and in and out. His, his story is amazing. He, he got to the United States. And then he taught at the uh, Richmond Professional Institute, and Inga was one of his students. He was, uh, he had, he had really, um, and, and Richard too, Richard Hamlin. I didn't tell you the story about the Hamlins. The Ham, Richard Hamlin, the son, the Hamlins had a farm just north of Hyde Farmlands, just north of the Little Nottoway River. And you could walk from farm to farm, and it was the Hamlin family that absolutely fell in love with these young uh, immigrants and had them over for, for dinner on Sunday, uh, treated them to their very first Thanksgiving dinner. In fact, it was Richard's father who gave Eva, one of the, uh, one of the immigrants, her own uh, bull, her very own bull. Uh, but this was a huge deal. This was, this was, this was tremendous. Um, Richard Hamlin's parents were, were, were so gracious and so loving uh, and made such a difference uh, in the lives of, of, of the immigrants. No, no, no. Uh, no, a little bit about it, but uh, not, not in, no. Matter of fact, the idea, uh, I'm sorry about that. That's, that's Connecticut talk. Um, my, my granddaughter say, pop up, you don't say idea, you say idea. <laughs> the idea is that uh, the farm was going to become a model for refugee training and resettlement that would be replicated. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious in my own mind, did William B. Talheimer consider his efforts a success or a failure? Because in his own mind, it never turned into what he had planned. But on the other hand, he saved lives. And so um, I, I want to believe that to his dying day, 
uh, and he was, of course, acknowledged. Um, he saved lives, and that and there can be nothing more significant than that. Question, question up here in the corner. Question up here in the corner. Th thank you for your lecture. I was just curious, what, what year was uh, William B. Tallheimer uh, confronted by the brown shirts? 30. Nineteen thirty. When he was in Germany. Nineteen thirty. Nineteen thirty. Thank you. Yeah. And and one other point. Um, of course, this was going on for a while. Uh, and, if, and if you know your history, you know that 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 this kind of anti-Semitism was growing and growing and growing. And early on, but concentration camps. Many people today think that concentration camps were only the camps in the nineteen forties, where there was indeed a genocide. No, concentration camps existed right from the beginning of Hitler's reign. And these were brutal, terrible places. And the reason that concentration camps were developed was really to partly to spread the kind of fear amongst the populace that if you did something wrong, if you stepped out of line or whatever, you would be sent to a concentration camp. And so Buchenwald was a concentration camp. It was not the killing camp of the 40s but many people died in Buchenwald because the conditions were just so deplorable while they were there. <laughs>